Hello, everyone. You are listening to Cover Story, and this is episode 12. If you are joining us for the first time, welcome. You can find all of our archive episodes over at thecoverstorypodcast.com. We've been having a lot of fun and hope you've been enjoying the ride thus far. For those of you that have been tuning in and reaching out to us via text, email, and on our Instagram page, thanks so much for the feedback and suggestions. It's greatly appreciated, so keep them coming. A shout out to my friend Matt from LA. Matt has been listening to our podcast during his morning bike rides to work. We hope we keep your tires pumping in the right direction. As always, I'm joined in our porch studio by my co-host Filler, aka The Bone, and his lovely wife Jenny. It was a big week for all three of us. Jenny had a birthday, Filler went surfing, and I refilled my fountain pen with ink. To keep things festive... (laughs) To keep things festive... Filler has whipped us up some libations and we are ready to press play because today's episode is a real doozy. On side A, we talk about one of the greatest unrequited love songs of all time, Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits. The song has been covered by numerous artists such as the Indigo Girls and the Killers to name a few. Contrary to popular belief, the song has little to do with the Capulets and Montagues and more to do with a fling between two rock and roll cats. And when you're ready to flip on over to side B, well, lately it seems that all roads lead to Jack White. And the road we took to get to Elvis Costello's cover of I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself not only led us to Jack White, but also to Dusty Springfield and Burt Bacharach. Sprinkle a little Sofia Coppola music video magic on top, and we've got ourselves a fine side B. So filler, why don't we hit that side A, s'il vous plaît. Success. I adore. It means I can buy 1959 Gibson Les Pauls and Triumph motorcycles, but I detest fame. It interferes with what you do and has no redeeming features at all. Mark Knopfler formed Dire Straits in London in 1977 with his younger brother David on rhythm guitar, John Ilsley on bass, and Pick Withers on drums. Emerging from the city's fertile pub rock scene at the dawn of the punk era, they were an overnight sensation. Sultans of Swing, the single from the band's self-titled debut album, found success on the back of Knopfler's smooth, finger-picked electric guitar style, the sonic akin to slalom skiing. Three more hit records followed before they reached their apex on the fifth studio album Brothers in Arms in May 1985. That record made Dire Straits superstars, but it also warped the popular perception of both Knopfler and his band, aligning them with an image of middle-aged, safe, homogenous rockers. What was forgotten was just how striking and sometimes radical Dire Straits seemed from their inception. The late 70s was saturated with lumbering rock dinosaurs and mono-dimensional punk thrashers, for better and worse, while Knopfler's arrangements were confidently bare-boned and fluid, weightful in their lightness. He was an undeniable craftsman and magician, able to tap into rock's classic lineage and filter it with wild originality, from Sultans of Swing to Romeo and Juliet. 
Mark Knopfler was born into a middle-class household in Glasgow in 1949. Music was a fact of life in Knopfler's house. The brothers latched on to Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, and later The Shadows. Hearing the latter, and in particular their lead guitarist, Hank Marvin, opened up a future filled with possibilities for Mark Knopfler. He followed down the rabbit hole of Marvin's distinct sound and found the wizardry of Chet Atkins, Elvis's guitar slinger Scotty Moore and James Burton, and blues greats such as Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, and Howlin' Wolf. At 15, he persuaded his father to buy him his first guitar, a 50-pound copy of Marvin's Red Stratocaster. Soon, he taught himself the basics and was playing in school bands and on the city's club circuit. On one hand, our parents were horrified that we wanted to make a career of pop music, David Knopfler says now. On the other, they had a liberal bias for letting us follow our own paths. But they would have preferred us to be architects or lawyers, not my son, the unemployed strummer. Soon thereafter, Mark and Pick Withers would form the band. Pick, the only member of the band without a day job, suggested the name Dire Straits. The newly christened four-piece played their first gig together in the summer of 1977. It was at a makeshift festival that took place on a patch of grass out the back of the Deptford Council block, and they ran a power cable from their flat to the small stage. Bass player John Ilsey recalls sharing the bill that afternoon with a bunch of snarling punk bands, though in reality it was a more approachable group named Squeeze who headlined. Using 500 pounds Ilsley had inherited from his grandmother, the band cut their first demo at the tiny Pathway Studios in North London. Among the five Mark Knopfler originals on the tape were Sultans of Swing, a loose narrative of watching a jazz combo flailing in a London pub, and a shuffle titled Down to the Waterline. The track sounded fresh and different, lyrically limber and beautifully performed. DJ and rock historian Charlie Gillette got hold of the tape and began airing it, alerting Phonogram Records A&R man John Staines, a rockabilly buff who snapped the group up to the major label. I listened to two songs that night and turned to John and said, he's got a red Stratocaster like Hank Marvin's. Who's managing this group? If Mark would have had a blue Gibson, I'd have walked out, but he encapsulated everything that was my dream. The band booked onto a 23-day UK tour with Talking Heads in December 1977. By the end of it, Dire Straits were recording their first album at Island Records' Basing Street Studios with producer Muff Winwood, elder brother of Steve and former bassist with the Spencer Davies Group. The self-titled Dire Straits album was released in October 1978. At a time when such post-punk and new wave acts as The Jam, Boomstown Rats, and Generation X were making an impression, it stood apart. Knopfler's songs were characterized by the intricacies of his guitar playing, the rolling gait of the band's rhythms, and by the open spaces in their arrangements. It was a rich musical terrain that drew comparisons with Dylan, J.J. Kale, and Ry Cooter, but in spirit it was closest to another great record released that year. Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. Like that record, it had the same connection to time and place. In Dire Straits' case, this was to the back streets of Newcastle and the bright lights of London, with Knopfler narrating his journey from one city to another. Tonight, however, we are talking about Dire Straits' 1980 hit, Romeo and Juliet. 
It first appeared on the 1980 album Making Movies. The song opens on an arpeggiated resonator guitar part played by Knopfler. The introductory arpeggios and melody are played on a national-style O guitar, the same guitar featured on the album artwork for Brothers in Arms and Sultans of Swing, the very best of Dire Straits. The song was inspired by his failed romance with Holly Vincent, lead singer of the short-lived band Holly and the Italians. The song speaks of a Romeo who is still very much in love with his Juliet, but she now treats him like, quote, just another one of her deals, end quote. Knopfler has both stated and implied that he believes Vincent was using him to boost her career. The song's line, Now you just say, oh Romeo, yeah, you know, I used to have a scene with him, refers to an interview with Vincent where she says, What happened was that I had a scene with Mark Knopfler, and it got to the point where he couldn't handle it, and we split up. At the time of its release, it represented a monumental change for Mark Knopfler as a songwriter and for the band in general. Knopfler always was a prolific writer, but as he approached Dire Straits' third album, he had new horizons in mind. He envisioned the band's sound being enhanced by keyboards, freeing him to explore more complex terrain. Romeo and Juliet was the first sign of his intentions, a near six-minute roller coaster ride rumbling through the wreckage of a shattered love affair. This classic love song has been covered by many. In 2007, The Killers did it great justice with a cutting cover live at the legendary Abbey Road Studios, and one of the most stunning versions I've heard features Emmylou Harris and Mark Knopfler, the man himself. This is much later in Knopfler's career, 26 years after the song was written. Post-Dire Straits, Knopfler has made musical contributions across the board, including a handful of solo records and multiple digs into country music, as the aforementioned collaboration with Emmylou Harris. As Mark said, I detest fame. It interferes with what you do and has no redeeming features at all. And this is historically clear in his social disconnect and the notoriously irredeemable dysfunction in the band. But I believe that to know Dire Straits music, the elegance and the ease, is likely the best way to truly know the man himself. For here, he lays it bare. I can't do the talk like they talk on the TV. I can't do a love song like the way it's meant to be. I can't do everything, but I'd do anything for you. I can't do anything except be in love with you. So, no. if, if you were here last week, you know we talked about a gentleman named Muff Winwood. If yeah. you listened to our episode last we, week, we dove into the this Muff. Is, yeah, we we dove right in there for like a good fifteen minutes. Um, <laughs> we enjoyed which it, is, which isn't bad. But <laughs> no taps on the head. You know, here we are. We find ourselves <laughs> back deep in Muff, and you know, I guess what we found out was that Muff not only drove Steve to the gigs and then played a little bass, Muff actually uh, had skills. Yeah. Yeah. Producing and sort of curating. Um, It's a beautiful record. It really is. I love that story. I I didn't know that about Romeo and Juliet, by the way. I'm totally like kind of diving right into that. But I didn't know that that... I always wondered what the song was about. 
Um, right. And I had no idea that it was actually about somebody tangible. It was autobiographical. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. I he, guess he really felt slighted in that. Yeah, well, she's kind of sounded like a dick. She's like, hey, let me yeah. hook up with this guy to like further my career. Right. And he's like, fuck you, I'm gonna write a little ditty about it. Yeah. But it's so interesting that she he, turned it around like he yeah. couldn't handle it. Yeah. It was a scene. I had it was a scene. Too much. I had a scene with uh, with him, and he couldn't handle it. But I think that. Pretty lame. The lyrics now did Mark Knopfler write that? Yes. So he's a songwriter. So those are some of my favorite lyrics in in all of music, dumb. Right. Because, and you said it at the end of your reading, I can't do everything, but I do anything for you. That right. lyric I think is like brilliant, and I feel like that's like the John Cusack like say yeah, anything yeah. like it's it's you know in your eyes, but it may as well have been Romeo and Juliet. Like right. that like really sums up that like sort he of knows teenage how to bear it. right. Yeah. And then there's that other line where it's like... He has the right delivery. He has the right delivery. And what yeah. does he say? He says, um, oh, yeah, Romeo, yeah, I used to have a scene with him. How could you look at me as if I were just one of those things or whatever he right. says? Like, that's like so... Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's great. So how do we feel, given that your daughter's um, name is Juliet? <laughs> well, hers, she's got a... She's got she, an extra T and an extra E. She's a Franchi, Franchi Juliet. Mm. Um, we thought it was a better spelling. I like that spelling better, too. Yeah. Well, it, it puts more emphasis on that. On the et. et. Um, yeah. But, um, no, I'm segueing. But the, the Indigo Girls version. Because so many of my friends, mm-hmm. you know, when I mentioned we were doing Dyer, the, uh, Romeo and Juliet, they just assumed we were talking about Indigo Girls. Like, so many people identify. And this is funny. I think this is what separates me from a lot of my friends is that I absolutely don't identify with the Indigo Girls version. Right. For me, it's straight up Dire Straits. Yeah. You know, Dire Straits reminds me of like... Um, so, for us, for you listeners uh, that don't know, we're in a little town, Allenhurst, New Jersey. And there's a beach club in this town. And when I was growing up, we all worked there. It was like... Everybody. Bush. It was like Bushwood. It was like a rite of passage. It was like Bushwood. It, it was like a beach version of Bushwood. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we'd hang out in this, like this little shack we were beach boys and we'd set up umbrellas and we'd hang out in this little shack, uh, for the rest of the day and collect a wage. Um, well, I was saving lives filler. Yeah. I was hanging out in the shack collecting <laughs> wages. You were ripping bong hits in the shack. Right. I, was, I was, I mean, I didn't witness it, I was shrooming, I'm sure on, you shrooming were. on the lifeguard stand. Yeah. I mean, I I was just being harmless in a shack. But um, we'd listen to, like, uh, when the good radio station, 106.3, went to Ugh. shit. Um, 104.3? We, we, we would listen to 104.3. 104.3, classic 104.3 rock. 104.3 was great, you know. Um, my, some of my played, favorite DJs. It, it played a lot of classic rock, but, like, this was the vibe. Like, yes. it would play a lot of, like, you know, you're, like, 14, 15 years old. You don't really know Dire Straits. And... You know, song like Dire Straits songs yes. were in heavy rotation. Yes, Sultans of Swing. It absolutely. kind of became like uh, mm-hmm. a big part of uh, sort of the soundtrack of that time. But also, what's really funny is like I don't know why I'm equating this song with the Dallas Cowboys. I don't know anything about football. Hmm. Like this is like where my sports. Uh, so that Walk of Life. You know that? Remember that video where they're doing all like the bloopers? Sports? Yeah, 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 it was like a. Maybe so that's it. Yeah, I'm like an MTV that. junkie back in the day, and I feel like maybe the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl or something like that. But then they had this video, and it sort of coincided. 
and there was like I don't know maybe I'm mixing up my sports stuff but somebody will fact check me I'm sure but regardless I remember that video and also don't fact check us don't, don't fact know. check us <laughs> just enjoy us for what we are yeah you don't you need know, to get you don't need to be you, you don't need to be aggressive with us yeah, we're not aggressive it's just a with lifeguard you, and you know? a beach boy I mean right. what do you want um, to Romeo. that's it um, I mean to me to me it was like um, I love I, wait I, wait I, by I, the way I love how your your topper here had made me start to talk about indigo girls and yet we just like hadn't even, we just like right. totally went well I don't I, left I, you know I mean sideways. the indigo the indigo girls version um I didn't recall from back when when we were what about researching you, Jenny? Do you this, remember this episode that? no when we were okay. researching this episode um I uh I checked it out and it was cool but I just don't have any personal experience. It's so with interesting. It, so, 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 really so their album. So, I, let me tell you about Indigo Girls. Yeah. So, for me, you know, as like a, a, te- a young teenager, Rites of Passage, their the Indigo Girls album that so like closer to find. That's like their mm. break. I, if they if they had a breakout song, I don't even know. I, I but know. like people, some people are like diehard Indigo Girls fans. Like a lot of my girlfriends. When did Vanderbilt. they cover this song? So in from their like 1992, 1992 album Rites of Passage. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it was like right when I was in high school, and. You know, a lot of people just took that to be the original song. I actually saw Dire Straits. Um, I left, I went to a boarding school, and I took, somehow got out of, I don't know what. what Waterboarding? Waterboarding school. Sorry, <laughs> I went to waterboarding school. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I saw Dire Straits. I went with day oh, students. Cool. So I, I like these awesome, like my friend Missy and Mora and this other guy, Andy. And we drove to Hartford, and... Um, and we saw Dire Straits in 1992, and they didn't open with Romeo and Juliet, but it was like pretty high up on their set list, right. like maybe song number three or four. And then, of course, they're doing all the others. But when they, when they, I remember like being like, "Holy fuck, this song is just yeah. amazing!" And to see it delivered. Now I'm 1992. I'm you know 16. Song was just like the whole. And this was like, by the way, 20 years after, you know, they sort of like entered the scene or, you know, 15, good 15 years. Um, I was just blown away by their, their performance. I mean, that could have been one of their last tours because uh, they officially disbanded in 95. Okay. Yeah. Like they had taken time off. I mean, they, apparently it's, it's well known amongst fans that they like were pretty dysfunctional. Um, Why? What was the dysfunction about? I didn't even know any of this. You know, I, I think that they sound so harmonic. What you uh, harmonious? Harmonious. <laughs> they don't um, sound like they're playing the harmonica. <laughs> but uh, my five-year-old sounds harmonic. They sound harmonious. <laughs> um, I think uh, I don't. You know, everything that I've heard was that Mark Knopfler kind of went from um, this very humble, like unseemingly rock star uh, like just and then became a rock star and within a few years um, became this like auto like mm. this autocrat mm. um, and you know what I understand that creatively creative democracies like don't always really right. work um, like they Chinese often democracy? don't that was yeah, terrible that was terrible <laughs> yeah, that was, sorry Jada sorry I, that sounds dysfunctional <laughs> that, that that album um, but like 
Yeah, he wrote the songs. He dictated what happened. Um, I, I, yeah, he also, I don't think he liked fame very much. I think he was just like kind of a moody dude. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. I think he was just not an easy an easy personality uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. For better for the music, maybe. Uh, for worse for the longevity of the music. Yeah. Um, and, and the longevity of his relationships. Yeah. He's had like several wives, too. Hmm. I think maybe he's just a hard person to fucking live with, probably. Yeah. Probably yeah. doesn't mean any harm. He's just probably... A, he's just probably an a, artist. A, a, a you know? curmudgeon. He's just probably somebody that was an old man when he was young. Imagine if you give fucking Vincent Van Gogh an electric guitar and you... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. imagine, like, the passion and the tumult, tumultuous sort of shit. Like, I yeah. feel like with any great artist, there's, like, always got to be some sort sure. of, like, other often, shit. Often. Often. Yeah. Right? Often there's got to be... Uh, when somebody's playing music um, that sincerely and they can tap into something... Then they're going to be open. They're going to yeah. be open, and so they're going to be open to inspiration. But they're also going to be sensitive to so many other things. And so, yeah, but maybe that maybe that is what breeds a, a volatile personality. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the Killers? Because they they do that cover, and there are a couple of Killer songs that I really like. Yeah, you know that really. I feel I'm right like, there with you. Yeah, yeah, and and that cover is awesome. Mm-hmm. That that cover is right on the money. Mm-hmm. It's know. really good. Yeah, I think I mean, that's, that's a very it's it, very hard to cover Dire Straits. Yes, you don't hear people cover Dire Straits. Um, you know, like in the same way that you don't hear people like cover like Steely Dan. Well, yeah, you don't hear people cover like there's a few bands from the '70s that are just like, well, you know, I was thinking, I can try this, but I'm just not going to do anything well with it. So, when I was 15 years old and I was really starting to get serious about playing guitar, uh, we had. A friend whose parents were like pretty cool, pretty chill, and well, we had a, we were lucky to have like a couple sets of parents like this, um, where on the weekends we could just go to their houses and set up and like jam in the dining room. Yeah, you know, me and my me and my friends that were that eventually became a band, but we were just finding our way as a band. And um, one uh, this girl that I hung out with, her dad was just like so passionate about Mark Knopfler really? and Dire Straits um, and I remember you know they would just let us hang out at the house because we played music and we were chill kids and I remembered him pulling me aside like into another room and he had a stereo set up like an old school stereo set up and like a record player hmm. and I remember him putting on Sultans of Swing and just explaining to me straight through Sultans of Swing uh-huh. the way that Mark Knopfler played guitar with his fingers and yes. with his thumb and, his, and, and, and no pick and this is why this sounded like this and that and he was just very passionate about it he wasn't really a musician but he was very musical um, and uh, that's what like got me Appreciating that band at yeah. age, and uh, yeah, that's that. That's the story of that. I love that cool story, though. and you know, like I think um, the one forgotten song that that I love mm-hmm. that like really for some reason resonates. I don't know if because my dad got me into so many like war movies like growing up, or like you know, you just always heard about like Band of Brothers and everything like that. Sure, but the Brothers in Arms song. Yep, yeah. that song is so beautiful, and it right. just like really. I don't know. I think that really kind of sold me. I mean, there were so many things that sold me on Dire Straits, but for some reason, that song and and so far away from me that like spoke to a different sort of, I guess, period than. But like money for nothing. So like this isn't even reflective of 
the band Sound. But it's like the coolest, like, all of a sudden these guys Ready are the coolest nothing. motherfuckers on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. Right. So, we were talking earlier about, like, that opening guitar riff. Yeah. Right. Top five for me, I think, I feel. He's He's got, like, this guitar technique that's, like, rooted in something from the 50s. And somehow you put, like, this like, mid-80s, really? like, Electric. polish on it. And you just dress it up like this with these super hip lyrics. And... And it comes in, like, I just love how, right. like, the impact. You know, because we were saying, like, even though, all right, they started in 70, so this is like a short-lived career for this band. I know they came back after, but they made albums between 77 and 85. Yeah. Right? And um, for the breadth of what they've done, that's not a lot of time, right? No, it's, it's like a, a flash in the pan. So, you know, there's music where you can you can say, oh, that's kind of like Tom Petty. There's yeah. music where you can say, oh, it's kind of like Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Then they kind of have their own thing going on. But then you come to Money for Nothing, and it's just like this transcendent pop track that is mm-hmm. the coolest fucking thing. Mm-hmm. That's like of the time, but yeah. not even. It's yeah. just its own thing. And how the hell do they get uh, Sting to be on the, like, you know, he does like, like the back. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to me, you know? Right. Like, I love it. Maybe it's one of those stories where you just happen to be hanging out in the, and in room B in the fucking and the I don't video. Know. I mean, it's like right. That's top, the way you top, do it. Top motherfucking shelf. Microwave oven. I play I mean, that you, for the boys. You got to be really cool. That. You got to be like, like Mark Mark Knopfler. Like looks pretty dorky, but he's probably pretty cool. I would imagine. I don't know. You know. Gets his money for nothing. It's six for three. He's got a headband. (laughs) He's got a headband and an armband. That's right. Elvis Costello is literally as old as rock and roll itself. The British singer-songwriter, whose real name is Declan Patrick McManus, was born in London in 1954, seven weeks after the real Elvis made his first Sun single on the other side of the Atlantic. For nearly five decades, Elvis Costello has been making his own records and composing some of the most melodically and lyrically accomplished songs in rock and roll. Elvis Costello exploded onto the late 1970s new wave scene as a brash singer-songwriter who reinvigorated the literal, lyrical traditions of Bob Dylan and Van Morrison and paired them with a raw energy and ferocity that were principal ethics of punk. Early in his career, Costello listed revenge and guilt as his primary motivations, But what really counted was the construction of his songs, which set his densely layered wordplay in an ever-expanding repertoire of styles. Since Costello's melodic instincts were as sure as his gifts as a lyricist, his musical experiments generally drew praise, enhancing his reputation as a quintessential critic's favorite. Rock singer David Lee Roth once remarked that critics like the bespeckled nerdy Costello because they all look like him. Granted, some members of the pop intelligentsia never forgave Costello for moving beyond the brazen, minimalist urgency of his early seminal albums. But it's just this progress that has allowed the singer to remain a relevant, respected artist. My Aim is True, his 1977 debut on Britain's stiff label, announced the arrival of the most original voice of the punk era. Costello aspired to more than that, however. 
His discography is a staggering library of confidence and daring. His 1978 to 1984 rush of classics with his great band The Attractions, genre adventures ranging from 1981's all-country experiment Almost Blue to his 1987 songwriting partnership with Paul McCartney. Costello co-wrote a batch of songs with Paul McCartney, several of which materialized two years later on the 1989 album Spike. The album, which also included support from Roger McGuinn, Chrissy Hind, and the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, produced a top 20 hit in the McCartney-Costello collaboration Veronica and went gold. More recently, Costello made waves again with his 2003 ravishing confessional suite North, which includes songs and albums made with artists as diverse as Burt Bacharach, Johnny Cash, and No Doubt. Speaking of Burt Bacharach. I want to cue up Elvis Costello and the Attractions 1978 cover of I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself. If truth be told, I did not hear this cover until just a few weeks ago. In fact, I thought the original version was the one I first heard when I popped in the new 2003 White Stripes album Elephant into my zippy little Saab station wagon. The Burt Bacharach composed with lyrics by Hal David, I Just Don't Know What to Do With Myself, has been recorded by the likes of Dionne Warwick and Dusty Springfield, who each laid down versions that were probably more in line with what Bacharach had in mind than with the White Stripes' ripping 2003 recording. Nestled on the same side of Elephant as Seven Nation Army, White's version of the pop classic seems to represent both an embrace and intentional distance from groovy 60s culture. Here are Bacharach's infectious melodies, but also a handful of guitar riffs and solos that thrillingly wrestle with the original's winsome hooks. Now, if truth be told, when Filler and I discussed doing Elvis Costello for this episode, I just don't know what to do with myself wasn't really on my radar as far as a cover song went. Yet there I was this week, falling down a pretty cool, albeit super punk, rabbit hole. I learned a whole lot of shit I didn't know about Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello has covered songs since the beginning of his career and has held forth on stage to interviewers on numerous tribute albums and in liner notes on his favorite artists and their work with respect and enthusiasm. I've compiled a list of the top 15 songs that Elvis Costello has covered, ranked in order with my favorite aforementioned I Just Don't Know What To Do With Myself, which lands at number one. So number two... What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, which was on his 1979 Armed Forces album. It is a cover of a Brinsley Schwartz 1974 song. At number three, we have My Funny Valentine, originally recorded by Chet Baker. Number four, we have So Young, originally recorded by Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. Number five is Psycho by Leon Payne. Number six, Withered and Died. Number seven, Walking on Thin Ice. Number eight, What I Like Most About You Is Your Girlfriend by The Special AKA. Number nine, Get Yourself Another Fool. Number 10, God Only Knows. Number 11, Step Inside Love. Number 12, Pouring Water on a Drowning Man. Number 13, Brilliant Disguise by Bruce Springsteen. Number 14, Changing Partners. And number 15, Femme Fatale. And what I love most about these covers is that in other songs, Costello balances his sometimes fatal love for wordplay with someone else's lyrics and how he navigates another melody, especially if the melody stretches Costello's conventional style and range. And as I crawl my way out of this Elvis Costello rabbit hole, I wonder, how does someone else's song become Costello's? All right, filler, Jenny. So you guys know we're all... Equally as into music as possible, but、hmm. I think the next thing on my 
like you know shit that just makes me really super happy would be Saturday Night Live. And one of the things that I, I love is going back to like the original Saturday Night Lives. And Elvis Costello, we've talked about like his just, I didn't know that he was, when he came out on the scene, he was considered, you know, a punk and he had this attitude and just like, you know, fuck you. So this is 1977, the Christmas show, which as you know, for Saturday Night Live is like a big deal, but they've only been in, in, on air for two years. They started in 1975. So 1977, the Uh. Sex Pistols were supposed to come on for the Christmas show and do their thing. They were blowing up, but somehow the producer... They're, like their manager fucked it up they couldn't get the visa to come to the US whatever mm. so Elvis Costello and the attractions come in like last minute and Lauren Michaels is like fine but listen you cannot play radio radio because they basically like that whole song is like anti-establishment like fuck you like all you like basically Lauren Michaels and producers of the world like you're just doing this for the money and like you don't have your passion that's what like the song is about right sure so Elvis Costello's like fine no problem we're gonna play Less Than Zero which is the song that's like are breaking like song that's like coming out so he gets about like one line into the song this is you know the first you know ladies and gentlemen Elvis Costello and the attractions right and they go into the song and he's like you know what sorry ladies and gentlemen we don't need to play this song right now and he just starts ripping into radio radio and he gets banned from Saturday Night Live for like ever and Lorne Michaels is so fucking pissed and this is the side of Lorne Michaels you don't see are like the the I, I don't want to call this a failure, but the obstacles he has to overcome. So literally, like, he's watching this performance live, and this is before you can cut and redo whatever, and he's giving Elvis Costello the finger the entire time he's playing radio, radio. And the more he's giving him the finger, Elvis and you can go and watch the like the clip. It's, like, insane to Amazing. watch. And he's like, yeah, fuck you. And, and Lauren's like, yeah, fuck you. And it's just, like, this whole behind. So finally, in 1989, after Spike comes out and Veronica's such a hit, he does get invited back. Back on, but it's been more than ten years, and I just feel like, you know, that sort of kind of um, makes to me Elvis Costello a whole fucking lot cooler than than he right. may be, you know, on oh, he's paper. Always been cool, right? right? Yeah, but but, I, I but just, that's a really cool. I story. know, I know, I really like that yeah. story. Anyway, so well, and, that song "Less Than Zero. Yeah, we talked about it. Well, we we talked about the movie "Less yeah. Than Zero. We talked about Bright, Bright Easton Ellis. Yeah, um, and, but what was the cover? So. Uh, uh, the hazy shade, hazy of, shade winter. of winter. Yeah, yeah. But so when I dug a little bit deeper on Less Than Zero, the whole song is about fascism and sort of, you know, right. and it just fits so perfectly. There's a reason Brett Easton right. his first book is... That's uh, right. Well, I mean, he, he was obviously a fanboy. Yeah. Um, of Elvis Costello. But, yeah. But it, the reference was very relevant. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting to me that, you know, you talked about it briefly in our banter about Dire Straits. But Mark Knopfler having this sort of persona of, you know, maybe not being so well liked, and Elvis Costello very much had the same sort of quality. The same thing. Yeah. Same kind of. Yeah, he pissed some people off. He did his own thing, and he has, you know, he like Mark Knopfler. He dated a lot of women. He married a lot of women. He's been married three or four times. He's now married to Diana Krall. They have a really beautiful marriage and partnership, and they write That's songs awesome. together. You know, so he's he's gotten to his like sweet spot after all of that yeah um well well but there's a lot of similarities between dire straits and elvis costello especially the sound and also the the frontman too it's very interesting yeah i mean elvis costello maybe has had a little bit a little bit more lasting power um Hmm. as far as being like freshly created right 
Um, yeah. Mark Knopfler has toured for a lot of years, but I'm not sure he's yeah been too fresh. That's true. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, but you know Elvis Costello too, like with that um, Notting Hill, you know that Julia um, Roberts that song he covers that she that's like such a beautiful song, and it's a cover. I forget who the original, but I I think the takeaway for me on this whole Elvis Costello side. B was that the amount of covers that I just assumed right. were his originals. What's yeah. so funny about peace, love, and happiness? Honestly, I feel like everybody in our demographic would say that that was an original song by him, but it's sure. totally not. You know? Yeah, well, anything he does is going to be in his mm-hmm. own voice. Yeah. You know, he has that kind of distinction. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, the most interesting thing about him is that he he does take on other people's songs mm-hmm. so openly. Um, and I'm surprised to find out that he's a little bit of a, a difficult guy. Yeah. Because usually people that are open to taking on other people's songs so readily um, well, that's are the, pretty egoless. That's sort of the contrarian yeah. aspect that I've come to find out about Elvis Costello. When you read his liner notes, when you read his interviews, and when you, when you hear him speak... He's so praiseworthy and enthusiastic about other artists. Right. So it's hard to imagine anyone else feeling otherwise yeah. about him. He seems like a student. That's it. Like like the best, you know, the artists I like. Even like the biggest superstars like David Bowie when they yeah. speak to the press. They sound like students. Of yes. Yeah, they're just you know. speaking with such reverence about their contemporaries and about the predecessors right. and, and things like that. Biggest so, stars to me. Are, right. The, the, the stars with, the, with longevity are the ones that always speak as if they're a student. Yeah. Um, a confident mm-hmm. student. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. 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 It's interesting. So you guys know that song, Allison? You know, Allison. So, Phil, you talked earlier about, like, working at the beach. Well, uh, yeah. when, when I was the lifeguard, <laughs> did we talk about that on air? I don't even know. No, we did. We did. Yeah. <laughs> it's all a bit. No it's all a bit fuzzy. Um, so... So I was a lifeguard, and my brother was dating this girl named Allison, who we're still friends with. But there's the head lifeguard, this guy that was like our manager. What the hell was his name? Did he wear really short cutoff? Uh huh. Hundred uh, percent. <laughs> like yes, yes. Like, like, like uh, Birdwell's uh, uh, up to like half up, up to the ball. Yeah, they were like 1970s like board <laughs> shorts that like didn't like <laughs> they wore sweatpants. Yes, they were just, just sweatpants that were cut, cut really short. It was but, so but, bizarre. But the, style, the style was like is that like from Rocky? Ab- I think it was called just know. above ball. Just above J-A-B. ball. J-A-B. Yeah. Jab. Jab. Not to be confused <laughs> with the muff. So jab, the <laughs> J A B. At any rate, like every day, like when Allison would arrive to work, he literally would be like, Allison. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, you know, he's like, uh, I know this world is killing. I so, like, like this dude. I can't remember his name, oh, though, but I liked him. Man. He was a nice guy, but yeah, totally definitely. Totally nice, but like, totally nice. Totally Just, the wackadoo, um, like, cut off, like, sweatpants. Now yeah, that you he say was that. the head lifeguard. You know, he could have been 50. I, he, I'm sure he was, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it got me thinking about Allison and that song. And so I stumbled across an interview um, with Elvis Costello where somebody's like, so is there a real-life Allison? Because that song has like always been sort of like, you know. 
And he says, here, I'll just read this to you guys. It's a hybrid of several people. The song is about a person. And this is why I think it's interesting because it, it really matches like that time when I was lifeguarding right. and like summer, lo- you know, all that stuff. So the song is about a person growing up and realizing life isn't going to be ideal. I know this world is killing you. You're not going to be this innocent girl that I first knew. And it's me that's doing it. There's not a huge distance between that and there's a story in your voice. That's another song that he said where I'm singing about a character at a similar moment in later life and she is realizing that the guy is a liar. So, so many of his songs are just about that sort of, I guess, sort of being, un- I, I don't know what the opposite of jaded is, but just sort of realizing that it's all not what it's cracked up to be. Kind of the, kind of like Romeo and Juliet, you know? It's like, eh, you know. Well, thank you so much for listening. This was Cover Story Episode 12. We want to thank our listeners and hope you will reach out to us on iTunes with a nice review or perhaps hit us up on Instagram at the Cover Story Podcast or you can even email us. So we hope you will join us next week for Episode 13 where we will take you to a territory that is common ground for me and filler which is that of heavy metal we will talk about a song where the main riff has been recognized as the riff that saved black sabbath and the song which has been singled out for praise by many hard rock and heavy metal guitar players with slash from guns and roses stating in 2008 that the outro to sabbath bloody sabbath is the heaviest shit i have ever heard in my life and until next time look out streets here we come